God's word will be proclaimed this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or to reach a Bible in the pew rack in front of you and follow along with me as I read. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together before we begin the message. Father, you have instructed us that meekness is a gift, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we want to admit readily, openly, that the decisive event in this next half hour, in the creation of this beautiful trait, is not preaching, but a work of God in the heart. And if you would be pleased, according to your divine appointment, to make the ministry of the word as a portrayal of meekness unfolded from Scripture to be the occasion for that divine work, it would be the joy of our lives. To that end, we pray. To that end, we long. Perform it, O God, according to your grace. Through Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. I think the most important question that you can ask of any beatitude is, what does it have to do with God? So this morning, what does meekness have to do with God? And the reason I think that's the uppermost question in our minds, or should be, is that if you can't answer it, if you don't know what meekness has to do with God, you won't be able to fulfill the aim for which the Sermon on the Mount was preached. Namely, we'll look at verse 16 in chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, which surely includes meekness, and do what? 
Give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus preached this sermon to create a kind of people which would attract attention to God. So if you don't know what meekness has to do with God, how will that happen? What's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer which stands at the center of this sermon? Hallowed be thy name. So the most important question we can ask is, what does the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, have to do with God? That is the most important question. If meekness is only something that is in a personality because a kid always got squashed when he was little, or because he has a personality because his parents always were soft-spoken when he was little. Or if all it is, is a personality because of a certain kind of metabolism. What's it got to do with God and how will he get any glory? Nothing. Meekness has got to have something to do with God. Or the purpose of the sermon aborts. And I think the best place we can begin to answer the question, what does this have to do with God, is Psalm 37. And I invite you, if you'd like to follow with me, we'll spend five or ten minutes in this psalm. Psalm 37. The reason I think that this is the place to begin is because I think this is where Jesus began. I think it's almost certain that the third beatitude is a quotation of Psalm 37, 11. And therefore, Jesus' mind was working in this psalm. And I think he was probably drawing content for the concept of meekness out of this psalm. Let me show you where I get this idea. Verse 11 of Psalm 37 says, The meek shall possess the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now, that's a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. If you were to translate the Greek Old Testament of this verse, which no doubt the New Testament writers and Jesus himself was familiar with, it would say, the meek shall inherit the land. It's the same word used here in the third beatitude. And the word land in Hebrew and Greek is the same as the word for earth. So it's almost a verbatim quotation. The meek shall inherit the land or the, the earth, the blessing of the territory that God dedicates to his people in the age to come. So I think it's right and good of us to take our interpretation starting point from this psalm and ask, what does it mean? What does meekness mean right here? First of all, then, notice the parallel between verse 9 and verse 11. Verse 11 says, the meek shall possess the land. Verse 9, second half, says, those who wait for the Lord shall possess the land. So I would conclude, wouldn't you, that the first thing we can say about meekness is, meek people wait for the Lord. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Laziness? Well, let's read wider in the context. Verse 5 to 8. Let's read these. And as I'm reading them, you be asking yourself the question, what is meekness and what is waiting for the Lord here in these verses? Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your vindication as the light and your right as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over him who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So who are the meek and the waiters, according to these verses? Well, a whole list of things are given. Let's just list them. Verse 5, they are people who commit their way to the Lord and trust the Lord. In verse 7, they are people who are quiet and still before the Lord and don't fret over others who prosper. And then in verse 8, they are people who refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Now, that's the, those are the paints out of which I want to try to paint a portrait of, of a meek person. Let's step back and try to put them in the order in which they occur in the human heart when they're developing. First, I think meekness begins with trust, or seeing God as trustworthy. The starting point for meekness is when you look at God and instead of running away from Him in terror, you see Him as a trustworthy Father who has your interest at heart and who will work for you, and you trust Him. That's step number one to meekness. Without it, You'll see by the time we're done, meekness is too high a calling to make it without that. The second step we see towards meekness is here where it says in verse 5, first half, they commit their way or commit your way to the Lord. If you've got a revised standard, you can probably, not a revised standard, a King James, you probably see in the margin it, it says the literal Hebrew of the word commit is to roll your way onto the Lord. That's right. The word means roll. Roll onto the Lord your way, your job, your relationships, your health, your frustrations, your failures. Just roll them off of you onto God every morning. You've heard me tell the story of uh, George Mueller, who in the midst of a very hectic and busy and pressured and critical day was asked by somebody, how do you maintain your composure and your calm and your joy in days like this? He smiled and said, I rolled 60 things onto God before breakfast this morning. The way George Mueller used to pray, he'd get up and he'd go and he'd start reading the Bible and as the pressures of the day came to his mind, he'd take them one at a time and just roll them off his back onto God's back because the Lord did invite that, you know, cast your anxieties upon me and I will care for you. So the second step towards meekness is first trust, then roll off of your back onto God's back anything that concerns you and weighs you down and frustrates you and makes your life hard to live. Third, after you've done that, it says in verse 7 that we should be quiet and still and wait patiently for the Lord. You see, once you've turned your life over to God, 
and rolled it off of you onto him, you can't tell him how to handle it. You can't say it's tomorrow, not the day after God. You've got to wait because he's trustworthy. You don't mind waiting for a trustworthy father who has your best interest at heart. So meekness begins by trusting. It then rolls all of life over onto God off of our back, freeing us. And then we wait patiently for the Lord. And there's a kind of, of holy stillness and a holy steadiness and composure about the person who has learned meekness. A, a steadiness and a calmness in the midst of a lot of upheaval and difficulty. Fourth, look at the second half of verse 7. Don't fret yourself over him who prospers, or as verse 8 says, refrain from anger. And you can see how that would be the natural result of the first three, wouldn't you? If you're trusting an all-powerful and all-loving Father, and you are rolling all of your concerns and cares onto His back, off of your back, and you are waiting patiently for His timing to work things out for your good, why fret and get angry? when something crosses you. Doesn't those first, don't those first three things give you the resources with which not to respond with anger and fretfulness? Well, that's the portrait from Psalm 37. We could probably add more, but there's some other places where I want to take up a paintbrush and add some strokes. Let's sum it up. There are Probably the definition, the closest thing to a definition here that we've come to is a peaceful freedom from fretful anger. Peaceful freedom from fretful anger. That's the way I would define meekness from this text. Now, the, the foundation of it is trust in God, uh, rolling things onto God that tend to make you anxious and fretful or angry, and then third, wait patiently for God's timing in your life. And if you do that, then you have a kind of peaceful freedom from fretful anger. Now, let's go to another very famous place. Have you heard before that Moses was the meekest man in the world? You remember that? Well, it's found in Numbers. Now, I would invite you to turn there with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. This is where that text occurs, and it's a puzzling one at first, but as I was pondering it, I saw something new, and I thought it would be helpful. The situation is that Miriam and Aaron are very angry at Moses, and they come with great criticism. So here's what happens. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman, and they said... Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all men that were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. Now, we won't read the rest of it, but what happens in the next verses is that God rebukes Miriam and Aaron and vindicates his servant Moses, with whom he speaks face to face as a friend. Now, 
Here's the question that I raised when I read this. Why does this comment concerning Moses' meekness come right here between a fierce attack of criticism from the people who are closest to him and the vindication of God, of his servant? Why is there a word right in between here to the servant or about the servant that he's the meekest man on the earth? It occurs at the very point where you would expect a word, and Moses said, don't you say that, Miriam and Aaron, I'm a chosen servant of the Lord. Watch your tongue. That's what you might expect to find there, and there's not a word, not a word from the servant of the Lord. God heard, it said, the Lord heard. Here's what I think the point is. A meek person hands over to God his cause instead of defending himself. So the lesson that I learn about meekness here is that it's not defensive. Meekness is an absorbent disposition. It's like a punching bag. No boxers work out with porcelain statues. They don't give. They hit punching bags because they kind of, they just kind of float in the air, absorb. That's meekness. It's a very painful discipline. Meekness is beautiful and painful. It absorbs like a sponge criticism and opposition and abuse. And if it's holy within, there's a fire that just burns up and they disappear. They don't hold that grudge within. Love doesn't keep account of wrongs. Meekness does not keep an account of wrongs. It just... Silence hands over to God. It's exactly the way our Lord Jesus is described in 1 Peter 2. He didn't open his mouth. There was no reviling found on his lips, but he handed over to him who judges justly. You don't need to defend yourself if you're in the right. Just hand it over to God and he will vindicate you in his time. So the, the new feature on the portrait of meekness in this text is that Moses is not defensive. He yields to God and God intervenes on behalf of his servant and vindicates him in his time. Turn with me for another feature to this portrait to James. Way over now at the other end of the Bible, Hebrews, James. James chapter 1. Let's read verses 19 and 20. And 21, and you see if you can label the new feature of meekness that is spoken of here. Know this, my beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rank growth of wickedness, and receive, 
There's what I mean by absorption. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So that's the word of God primarily in view there. James has two kinds of people in view here, doesn't he? The one he doesn't want us to be like and the one he does want us to be like. And the one he doesn't want us to be like is the person who's quick to speak, slow to hear, quick to anger. You all know that kind of person. We've all talked to him before. He either, if, if you say something that starts to cross his opinion, he either quickly interrupts you and starts preaching at you, or you can see the wheels turning as he formulates his answer, and he's not listening to you. And there's no real heart interchange going on. And that's not meekness. No matter what the tone of voice is, it's not meekness. Meekness Let's look at the positive person here. Is a person who's slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. Why? Because meekness is profoundly aware of its fallibility. Meekness is profoundly aware of its finiteness. And so meekness is eager to learn. Meekness wants to be corrected if it's wrong. Meekness is reasonable. If we had time, I'd love to give you... I, I stapled together six pages of my manuscript here, so I wouldn't preach them. But if we had time... If we had time, here's what I would say. <laughs> we would go to chapter 3 and look at verses 13 and 17, where it says, The wisdom that comes down from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason. And I would try to persuade you that the essence of meekness is reasonableness. And then I would apply it to boards and committees in our church and tell you that whenever you have an opinion, you should give reasons for it. Because somebody who says, well, that's just my opinion. You don't have to believe it. I've got my opinion. You've got your opinion. It sounds so meek. It's not meek. It's not self-effacing, it's self-protecting. You see that, don't you? I got my opinion, you've got your opinion, and you don't submit your opinion and his opinion to a standard of truth to which you are both servants in humility. You just give your opinion. So there's this massive relativism all over the place, and we're all protected. We're not vulnerable anymore. People who give reasons and submit themselves to a standard of truth are vulnerable. They might be shown wrong, and then they have to change. That's meekness. Meekness is open to reason. It's teachable. That's the word I like to use here. It's teachable. Slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen, ready to change if it's shown wrong. That's meekness that we learn of in James. There's one other feature I want to share with you. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. While you're turning, consider this. What should a meek person do? Having been slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, and concluding that what he's hearing is dead wrong and harmful. You see, there are a lot of people who confuse meekness with never rebuking anybody 
never criticizing anybody, and that's not true. And these two verses here in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, show that meekness is not synonymous with the refusal to rebuke or correct. There's just a way to do it. And here's the way. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of meekness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So you see the spirit of meekness there? Meekness is not only slow to anger. Sometimes having been slow to anger, it gets angry. That's not wrong, always. There's a difference between being quick to anger, which is wrong, and being slow to anger and then getting angry. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly in heart. And in Mark 3, 5, it says, He looked around on the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Isn't that beautiful how those two things go together? Grief and anger. That's why it was a meek anger. Or he turned over the tables in the temple and he he pushed those money changers out and I don't think he ceased to be a savior of meekness at that point. It's just that there comes a point when indignation on behalf of the glory of God calls for something else rather than passivity. And it, it, it isn't a breach of meekness when it happens if you've been slow to anger and considered in humility. The mark of meekness in these verses is self-suspicion, isn't it? Look to yourself lest you too be tempted. The meek person, when he undertakes to rebuke and correct, stands in front of the mirror of God's Word and, and is suspicious of himself. Jesus put it like this, how can you take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? First, be suspicious and find the log and take the log out of your eye then. It does not say, then you'll stop seeing specks. It is not what it says. It says, then you will see clearly to be a good eye doctor. You won't blind the person when you go to take the speck out of their eye. So don't confuse meekness with a hesitancy to rebuke and correct. There is a way to do it, and many of you have have discovered that way, and I thank you for it. Let's summarize what we've seen now. Here's the portrait. Meekness begins with trust in God. Secondly, it rolls onto this trustworthy God our whole life. You could become a Christian this morning at this level right here, if you're here without Christ. Just rolling your life onto God. That's the essence of adopting Him as your Lord. could happen right now. I invite you to make it happen. Third, having rolled your life onto the Lord, you wait patiently for Him and His timing to work all things out 
for your good and for his glory, which leads forth to a kind of freedom from fretful anger. You become a kind of punching bag that gives and absorbs. You don't become a porcelain statue so that when something hits you, it goes right back into their face. It's immediate revenge, immediate. You absorb. Meekness is basically a non-activity. In two weeks, we'll get to blessed are the mercy, and that's not a non-activity. That's a proactive phenomenon. This is just an absorption. Meekness is basically a non-activity. It's absorption. And then, with regard to Moses, it's not defensive. And with regard to James, it's quick to listen quick to entertain a person's considerations and arguments and slow to anger and slow to write a person off who has a different opinion. And then with regard to Paul in Galatians, it is self-suspicious. And when it finally comes to the conclusion, I've got to say something to that person about that attitude or about that way of, of behaving. It looks hard and long at itself and humbles itself and first of all deals with its own sin and then in lowliness goes and entreats the other person to be changed. In the last few minutes, three or four minutes, I want you to look with me at the second half of the Beatitude. For theirs is... No. For they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? How does it relate to the first half? This is very brief. The promised halves of the Beatitudes... I think are intended to give strength for the other half, the first half. You can see that plainly in verse 12, can't you? Rejoice and be glad in that day when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice for great is your reward in heaven. So the promise of reward is intended to give strength and ability to rejoice in the midst of persecution. I think that's true with every beatitude. So you say, blessed are the meek, and I cry, how can I be a punching bag in my own strength for somebody's boxing gloves? Where do I get the spiritual resources and strength to absorb and absorb and absorb and not hit back? Where do you, where do you get that? That's not human. You get it from promises like these. John Piper, you will inherit the earth if you absorb that. Turn with me to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the only other text we're going to look at. I, I bring it up because it has meant so much to me in understanding how promises are connected to meekness. Where does the strength come from to keep absorbing and not be defensive and not be bitter. Listen to what's happening here. You know the situation at Corinth. The church was rent asunder by factions and one person was saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ and everybody's boasting in human wisdom and the church is torn to pieces by these proud boastings. Listen to how Paul deals with this in verses 18 to 23 of 1 Corinthians 3. Let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So let no one boast of men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. There it is, the inheriting of the earth or life or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Do you see the logic of verse 21? Don't boast for foundation, argument, source of strength. All things are yours, including the whole world. Now, how does that work in your heart? How does it work? Have you had experience with this? Surely you have. The Lord comes to you in the midst of tremendous pressure from without. Everything seems to be going wrong. One thing after another, they just pile up on you. You think you can't take anymore and you open a cabinet and it hits you in the face. It's just crazy how some days go. And he says, you can absorb it because everything in this world of any value at all, stands at your service forever under my sovereign control. The whole earth is yours forever if you absorb in faith in me what comes your way rather than becoming a revengeful or vengeful person. Would I need to brag to you, my house is bigger than your house, if my daddy owns the city, and I'm the beneficiary written in his will? I mean, why brag? If you want to get all huffy and puffy about the relative sizes of our houses, I think that that promise will enable me to just absorb that. I don't need to brag about my house and your house, nor, by the way, do I need to feel depressed that your house may happen to be at this time bigger than my house. We are heirs together with Christ of everything His Father owns, and His Father owns everything. Now that's so big, you probably can't get it into your heart right now. But I commend an afternoon's meditation upon the truth that yours is the world, you will inherit the earth, which simply means it is true today and it will be true for all eternity that for the disciples of Jesus, everything that exists, exists for your benefit. Which is simply another way of saying Psalm 832. No, Romans 832. He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, Will He not freely give us all things with Him? You see the logic of that? If He didn't spare His most precious possession for you, His Son, He'll spare no effort to make you maximally happy for all eternity. And that's the only way. I know how to be meek. 
That's the only way the beatitude suggests we can be meek. Think about it. Where are we going to get the strength to absorb the Miriams and the Aarons of our life and love them without that promise? Let's stand and thank the Lord together. Lord Jesus Christ, again, we close by admiring you. For you didn't just say it, you lived it. Oh, how we love your teaching. Oh, how we love your promises and thank you for them. Oh, how we love your portrait in the Gospels. Caring about little children. Fiercely defending the righteousness of your Father against the false Pharisees. Oh, Lord God, make us a meek people towards each other. Cause us to love one another and forgive one another and beseech one another to live in the light of the gospel. Lord, perform the miracle of meekness at Bethlehem so that when people come in among us, they see the light of the world and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And all the people of God who desire that end said, Amen.